Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the People Processes Podcast, where we dive into the updates, interviews, and yes, processes that will help your organization thrive. My name is Rami Alijil, and my goal is to help HR managers and business owners create an environment where their people are their organization's competitive advantage. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive into non-compete agreements. This is going to be a longer episode than usual because we're going to get into some real details here. So expect a 20 to 30 minute episode. Oh, and don't forget, we post to LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and I would love to hear from you on there with any questions. You can also subscribe to us by going to peopleprocesses.com, where you will receive special subscriber-only content for free. People Processes is also available wherever you get your podcast, and it syndicates on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher Radio. Whenever an employer hires a new employee, the employer provides that person with access to the organization's most valuable assets, its people, its customers, and its way of doing business. Given that the average American will change jobs seven times over their work life, chances are high that some of that information will eventually find its way to a competitor. More frequently than ever, companies are trying to prevent that from happening to protect themselves and their assets from the damage that can result when an employee departs to work for a competing business or set up a competing enterprise. An employer should require employees to sign employment agreements, wherein they agree to maintain the secrecy for all of the organization's trade secrets. In addition, an employer may consider a covenant not to compete that has geographic scope and duration limits. Such terms should be included in an initial employment agreement entered into at the start of the employment relationship. While it may not be easy to go back and add these terms because there must be adequate consideration in exchange for these post-employment obligations, if an employer will be paying an employee anything more than the absolutely legally owed, the employer may be able to condition the bonus on having signed an agreement to maintain the trade sequence as confidential, and to provide the employer with written assurances that the employee no longer has any proprietary or trade secret material. Take a note, though. The state law governs these restrictive covenants, trade secrets, and other non-competition agreements, not federal. While many of the general legal principles set forth in this kind of discussion apply universally, there can be significant differences among states. The most obvious distinction is that some states, notably California, prevent restrictive covenants that inhibit an employee's ability to find new employment. Other distinctions among the laws of various states may be less dramatic, but under certain circumstances no less important. Such differences are particularly critical if the agreement is intended to apply to employees who may be located in different states, such as a sales force. The substance of individual state law is beyond the scope of this discussion, though, so we're going to intend to offer a general understanding of the concepts involved. Individual state laws should be reviewed before any agreement discussed in this material is drafted. By the way, time for me to insert my standard disclaimer, I am not a lawyer. I'm an HR expert, and this should be taken as broad HR advice, not specific legal recommendations for your organization. Check with an attorney if you have any questions at all. General protections. So, employers have certain limited protections recognized by the law under a variety of theories against unfair competition, disloyal employees, and overreaching competitors. Turning legal theory into meaningful remedies requires attention to detail and appreciation for the conflicting public policies. An organization's current employees are under what's called a duty of loyalty to the organization. 
Each state defines that duty a bit differently. In general, employees are not permitted to induce certain customers, I'm sorry, current customers, suppliers, or other employees to leave the organization, nor are they allowed to operate a competing business while still employed by that organization. When that duty is breached, the employer may be entitled to collect lost profits, punitive damages, and out-of-pocket costs incurred to train replacements. Offending employees may be forced to forfeit their salaries or to give up any profits they made as a result of the disloyal conduct. In addition, courts may issue injunctions forbidding the employees to engage in similar conduct for a specific period. Under the duty of loyalty, the law generally prevents any individual from using trade secrets or proprietary information of a current or former employer to the detriment of that employer. What's kind of cool is an employer need not do anything special to create this duty, and the employee needs not sign any agreement to be covered by it. The law recognizes the duty of loyalty and the value of proprietary information standalone. When wrongful conduct has been proven, the law provides a remedy. It will, however, be up to the employer to prove in court that the information it seeks to protect meets standards for trade secrets and that it did everything it could to safeguard the secret nature of that information. So that leads to an important question. If you have to meet the standard for trade secrets and, and show that you did everything to, uh, in, 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 that you can uh, to safeguard the secret nature of the information, what is a trade secret? Well, a trade secret can be any information that derives independent economic value from not being generally known or readily, readily ascertainable. I'm going to repeat that. A trade secret is any information that derives independent economic value from not being generally known or readily, readily ascertainable. Among the things that can be trade secrets are formulas, patterns, comp compilations, programs, devices, methods, techniques, or processes. Among these things courts have found to be trade secrets are machining processes, blueprints, stock picking formula, customer lists, pricing information, and non-public financial data. On the other hand, information such as overhead rates and profit margins that help define a price may be found to be a trade secret even if the price itself is known. So it requires, it's standalone information that gives you value, but only when other people don't know it. So how do we test that? Well, there's, there, there's legal tests. 48 states and the District of Columbia have adopted in whole or in part the Uniform Trade Secret Act, the UTSA. The UTSA codifies the basic principles of common law trade secret protection and may afford employers protection even in those states like California, where restrictive covenants are generally not enforceable. The UTSA protects an employer from misappropriation and misuse of actual trade secrets, which are defined in the UTSA as information, including a formula, pattern, compilation, program, device, method, technique, process, drawing, data, or customer list that has two features, derives independent economic value, actual or potential, from not being generally known or readily ascertainable by other persons who can obtain economic value from its disclosure or use, and is the subject of efforts that are reasonable under the circumstances to maintain its secrecy. So not only does it have to be valuable and hard to figure out, it has to be subject to efforts that are reasonable under the circumstances to maintain its secrecy. An employer must take reasonable measures to maintain the confidentiality of its trade secrets. In determining whether reasonable steps have been taken, courts balance the cost and benefits on a case-by-case -case basis. Even states that have not adopted the UTSA generally accord similar protection to trade secrets under the restatement of torts, called the second of torts. It's section 757, if you want to look that up. To determine whether a piece of information is a trade secret, states following the restatement of torts will generally examine the following six factors.
the extent to which the information is known outside the business, the extent to which it is known by employees and others involved in the business, the extent of measures taken by the business to guard the secrecy of the information, the value of the information to the business and to its competitors, the amount of effort or money expended by the business in developing the information, and the ease or difficulty with which the information could be properly acquired or duplicated by others. Those are the six things that are tested to determine whether it is a trade secret. So we've talked about trade secrets. Those are automatically protected, right, under the duty of loyalty, which doesn't require a special document. But what about extra stuff? Those are called restrictive covenants, also known as non-competition or non-compete agreements. Those are contractual arrangements that restrict employees' rights to compete with their employer for a period of time following the termination of employment. Once reserved for the highest level executives, researchers, and like outside sales personnel, non-compete agreements are being increasingly used with mid-level managers, technical staff, and any other employee whose departure could create a competitive disadvantage. Unlike the common law duty of loyalty, an agreement not to compete prohibits conduct that takes place after the employment relationship has ended and is not limited to the wrongful conduct, such as stealing client lists. Other agreements are more narrow, restricting only contact with customers. Such an agreement is referred to as a non-solicitation agreement. Through the, though the use of non-compete, non-solicitation, and non-disclosure agreements, employers try to prevent employees from cashing in on opportunities gained during the employment relationship. That's their purpose, right? We've brought you in. We've given you this information. You're developing our company. And now you're more valuable because of the information we gave you. Our competitors will pay you extra. We should be able to protect against that. That's the basic idea of the restricted covenant. So, restricted covenants provide protection by preventing former employees from alienating long-standing customers and disclosing or using confidential information acquired from the employer. Note, however, that with professionals such as doctors, accountants, and certain others where a personal relationship has developed, courts will frequently refuse to enforce a non-competition agreement that would result in patients not being able to see their own doctor or clients not being able to use the accountant that they've dealt with for years. So they're limited a lot by the choice of the client. Employers can protect confidential information that may be helpful to a competitor or to an employee who decides to go into private business. Courts will enforce this protection if an employee has signed a restrictive covenant and the covenant is reasonable in all other important aspects. This is distinct from the general provision provided by the law of trade secrets and is a way for employers to protect themselves against disclosure of information that might not otherwise qualify as a trade secret. An employer must, however, be able to show that the information was indeed treated as confidential. So let's talk about, before kind of getting into a campaign to have employees sign non-compete agreements, companies should consider a few cautionary points. So let's talk about those. Considering these points will help companies draft workable agreements, i.e. enforceable ones. Courts in all states dislike non-compete agreements, and they welcome the opportunity to limit or eliminate them. Their sentiment is largely based on a desire to allow individuals to earn a living in their field of their choice. Agreements that are too broad are likely to be tossed out or at least be rewritten by a judge in those states that allow for such an option. As a general rule, courts will consider the following factors in determining whether to enforce a restricted covenant. 1. Does the employer have a legitimate interest in being protected from this employee's competitive activity? So a court may refuse to enforce a restriction that is too broadly drafted, even though the employer may be able to demonstrate a le legitimate business interest worthy of protection. So it needs to be um, it needs to be narrow in scope. 
is the restriction reasonable in light of all the circumstances? By reasonable, the courts would mean that the agreement is no more restrictive upon an employee than is necessary to protect the employer's legitimate business interests. Third, is the restriction reasonably limited in time and geography? This is a requirement. The agreement must contain a reasonable time restriction. Such a time restriction would be based on factors as the time it would take to train a new employee and for customers to become familiar with this new employee and eliminate the identification between the employer's business and the former employee. The geographical scope of the restriction must be limited to areas necessary to protect the employer's interest. So it can't just be five years, because five years, that seems like long enough. You have to be able to justify that, hey, this is going to be six months or one year or two years because it takes that long for us to bring in someone, train them up, here's our training program, and that long for them to reestablish a relationship with the clients or whatever it is that, that, that the uh, previous employee has left behind. Uh, the geographical scope is limited to areas necessary to protect the employer's interest, but that's pretty broad, right? Um, but one thing to keep in mind is that it's definitely the prescient, the current interests. You can't be like, well, we want to expand to Nevada one day, so you can't go anywhere in the United States. You need to try and keep that as limited as possible to protect the majority of your interests. Um, it doesn't necessarily look to the future. Will enforcing the restriction harm the public interest? This is the fourth question. Will any aspect of public policy be effective if the agreement is enforced? This factor, of course, seems to be the least definitive most of the time. However, the following example may be illustrative. An employer hospital requires a restrictive covenant with the only cardiac surgeon in a 500-mile radius, and that surgeon then leaves the hospital. If that restrictive covenant were to require the surgeon to not compete within a 200-mile radius, the public would be severely harmed by this restrictive covenant, and it would be thrown out. So there's a public interest piece to enforcing these as well. Two more pieces. This is really important. Was there reasonable consideration given in return for the restricted covenant being signed? Most states require an employee employee's agreement to non-competition restrictions be in exchange for receiving something of value, such as the initial job offer, a raise or promotion, or extra benefits upon leaving the organization, like a um, uh, uh, oh, an agreement when you leave. Uh, severance, a severance agreement. <laughs> Finally, when, when will the non-competition restriction be triggered? Some agreements apply automatically, whether the employee's termination was for cause, without cause, or as part of a layout. Some agreements only if the employee resigns or is terminated for cause. Other agreements limit the period of restricted activity to the time um, severance benefits are being paid. Uh, some look at the time that they'll be covered under um, benefits, um, the duration of... of um, uh, COBRA, those kind of things, even though COBRA is a personal right, but they'll kind of time it to, as, as long as we're paying for some portion of your benefits, those kind of things. <clears throat> when the Where the period of restricted activity is limited to the duration of severance benefit payments, the employee is free to forego severance payments to accept employment, right? So if you make it part of your severance agreement, just keep in mind that there's an easy way out. Note that some employers include an agreed upon fee that the employee will pay if the employee engages in a prohibited activity during the restricted period. Those make them much easier to enforce, right? Because you're not weighing a lot of things. It's just a matter of the employee paying something back or paying some amount if they break the agreement. So now let's go on to enforcement. The best non-compete agreements are narrowly tailored to meet the most important needs of the organization. They're judiciously applied only to individuals in sensitive positions and vigorously invoked when violated. 
In many cases, many merely having a non-compete agreement in place will discourage most employees from leaving the organization to work for a competitor. When an employee does leave, however, the agreement allows the employer to have some control over the timing, terms, and effect of the departure. Companies must fight to enforce their non-compete agreements. If the potential harm is, just, is sufficient to justify a restricted covenant, it is serious enough to do something about when the covenant is violated. If you look at this as a preventative measure and if something violates it, you're not going to go after it, you don't have any ground to stand on. Violation of non-compete agreements may allow employers to obtain, in addition to monetary damages, non-monetary relief, such as restraining orders and injunctions to protect the organization's interests. Companies that fail to enforce their non-compete agreements often find that their former employees or attorneys can argue that there was no need for the restriction in the first place since the organization has not bothered to enforce it in the past. Keep that in mind. Okay. Next up, we're moving a little bit away from non-compete to non-disclosure, non-solicitation, and no-raid agreements. Employers can have employees sign even more limited agreements versus non-compete. For example, non-disclosure, no-solicitation, and no-raid agreements, which do not limit their ability to work in the field, but do prevent them from causing harm to the former employer in their new job. These more limited agreements are usually more easily enforced than a true non-compete agreement. One difficulty with these agreements, however, is proving that they have been violated. A non-disclosure agreement can prevent an employee from using or disclosing an employer's confidential information in the new job. An advantage of this sort of agreement is that employers can define confidential information so that more things are included than would qualify as trade secrets under common law. In addition, such a signed agreement would prevent employees from pleading ignorance as an excuse for sharing confidential information. It would, of course, be difficult to prove a violation when the employer's confidential information could arguably be ascertained from sources other than the employee, though. So it needs to be stuff that you would know. You'd be able to figure it out. Otherwise, why have it? A non-solicitation agreement prohibits the employee from going after the organization's customers or suppliers. And a no-raid agreement prohibits the employee and new employer from inducing other employees to leave the original employer to work for the new one, at least for some specific time after the former employer leaves employment. While employee raiding is not recognized as a cause of action in most states, employers may be able to pursue a remedy for raiding of employees based on a claim of intentional interference with contractual relations or prospective economic advantage. These agreements tend to be viewed more favorably by the court since they do not actually keep anyone from working somewhere else. They just keep you from stealing all of my employees or your employees. Uh, the last one is a conflict of interest clauses. This is a this is a big one. Mm-hmm. Many employers also include a conflict of interest bleh, conflict of interest clause in their non competition agreements. These this provision generally requires employees to devote their entire productive time and full attention to the employer as a condition condition of employment. A conflict of interest clause may also contain an agreement by employees to refrain from directly or indirectly engaging in any outside employment, consulting, or other business activity while employed by the employer. Employees can additionally be required to agree to refrain from engaging in any outside employment without the written consent of the employer. So we've covered quite a few conflict of interest, no raid, no solicitation, non-disclosure, and of course, non-competes. All have different uses. Now, employers are, of course, concerned about enforcing their own trade secrets, but they often find themselves in a position to hire a competitor's employees as well. So let's talk about the flip side for a minute. In these cases, it's worthwhile to take some precautionary steps because the state courts may find that a new employer's interference with valid non-compete agreements constitutes tortious interference with the former employer's relationship with the employee. 
an employer should first determine if the employee is subject to any restriction. An employer should not be satisfied with a vague answer to a question whether the employee has any sort of restrictive agreement with the former employer. The employer should have the employee sign a statement that the individual is not subject to any non-compete or other arrangement. If an employer hires a competitor's employee without knowing that the employee is subject to a restricted covenant, the organization could be sued for interfering with the previous employer's contractual rights, just as employers could sue an organization that hired one of their employees subject to such an agreement. The key to lawsuits regarding violation of another organization's restricted covenant is the hiring organization's knowledge of the restriction and its decision to employ the person in spite of this knowledge. That is why the first step in such a case may be the sending of a certified letter by the old employer to the new, putting the new employer, quote, on notice of the restriction. If, in fact, it can be proven that the nature of an individual's work for the new employer makes it virtually impossible for the individual not to use or disclose the old employer's confidential information, a court may be persuaded to restrain the employee from working for the competition at all. If an employer learns that a new hire does have a restricted covenant, the employer should obtain a copy of the restricted covenant for legal counsel to examine. It may be that the prohibitive activity does not match the duties of the position that you're hiring for, that you're trying to fill. The agreement may also appear to be too broad. It may also be that there was no consideration in return for the agreement being signed. If any of those happen, you've got a pretty good leg to stand on to do it anyway. Once an employer knows how enforceable the agreement is, the employer can decide how to proceed. An employer may want to begin negotiations with the other employer in cases where the agreement seems especially strong. The employer should be especially cautious about hiring employees with non-competition agreements if the organization requires such agreements of its own employees. It will be very difficult to enforce agreements based on what the employer argues is a legitimate reason for having employees sign them if an employer finds it acceptable to violate another employer's agreements. So keep it straight. Uh, if you're gonna, if you want them, then you gotta abide by other people's. If you you know, want to fight them, then you probably can just have a good lawyer look over them first. So let's talk about some broad practices, and then we're wrapping up. Employers are protected by common law from the misuse of trade secrets by former employees, as we've covered. To ensure their confidential information is protected, employers must actually treat this information as confidential and restrict access to it, instituting restricted access procedures and posting appropriate signage. Employees should be trained in the proper handling of confidential information. If you don't train your employees in the handling of confidential information, you really don't have a leg to stand on in saying you have confidential information. In situations where employers fear that employees may leave and take customers with them or share crucial information with a new employer, employers should carefully draft appropriate restricted covenants and have the employees sign them. Restricted covenants must follow reasonable guidelines if there is to be any hope of enforcement. They must protect a legitimate interest of the employer and they must be as narrow as possible, avoiding broad and lengthy restrictions. Employers are encouraged to limit disclosure of confidential information in the workplace by one, requiring employees sign the reasonable non-disclosure and non-compete agreements, disseminating information on a need-to-know basis, restricting access to file drawers or offices or to electronics containing proprietary information, develop and maintaining a sensible document retention and destruction policy, and conducting systematic inventory of confidential information. Furthermore, upon the departure of an employee with access to trade secret information, an organization should conduct an exit interview to obtain knowledge about the scope and duties of the employee's new position. <clears throat> you need to be able to repossess and delete any trade secret information by that employee, including home files if they have any. 
Likewise, employers interviewing candidates should also take certain precautions to ensure that new employees do not become the subject of an injunction based on their former position. Employers should first investigate whether a particular candidate is bound by a non-compete agreement or non-disclosure. If such an arrangement exists, then the employer should obtain a written representation from the new employee that the employee compiled with all obligations set forth within the agreement. Employers also should be aware of a new employee's prior work product, which may be subject to work-for-hire limitations. As defined by the Federal Copyright Act, work made for hire is, if the parties expressly agree in a written instrument signed by them, the work is considered a work made for hire, either of the following, a work prepared by an employee within the scope of their employment, a work specifically ordered or commissioned for use as a contribution to a collective work or compilation. Limitations apply to such work due to contractual agreements, not necessarily non-competes. So take a look. That's another thing to check outside of previous agreements. Make sure they're, they're not bringing with them work made for hires for someone else. Finally, employers should remember to use practical methods to avoid the appearance of impropriety, such as creating a new position for employees hired from competitors or documenting new employees' activities in ways that show independent action. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. It's just a long kind of deep dive. We have all this on our website in a written form. For those of you who like to maybe dive in a little bit deeper, we have links to some important supporting documents. That's peopleprocesses.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you out there. I'm Rami Alijil, and thank you for taking the time to listen in deep with us. Go out there, get your work done, and have a great day.